0: Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. to another edition of the Bar Talk podcast. I am the Executive Director of the Omaha Bar Association, Dave Summers. I have the pleasure today of interviewing Judge Doug Johnson, who is a juvenile court judge here in Douglas County. Judge Johnson is also the immediate past president of the Omaha Bar Association, and so he's dealt with me on many occasions over the last year as I've been bugging for bar stuff. We're here today to sit down with him and get a sense of what he's Dealing with in juvenile court and to get a background on him, Judge Johnson, welcome.
1: Thank you, Dave. Morning,
0: Judge. Give us a little bit of your background. Where, where were you born, raised, um, went to school, all that?
1: I was born in Omaha, uh, 1954, and my parents had four kids. I was the third one, and uh, you know we grew up first around the cathedral area, and then we moved out. What was considered out in the country, uh, which is now Keystone. And then, uh, you know, we started out at Saint Cecilia's, then Saint Bernard's, and then Saint James as the city moved west. And so I, you know, I, I was uh, raised here and went to high school, college, uh, you know, and um, you know, kind of the uh, classic '50s, '60s family. We we lucked out. We didn't know how good we had it, frankly.
0: Sure. And one thing. Um, in your past that's that's very unique is your time with the Jesuits. Can you talk on that a little bit?
1: True. Well, in our family, uh, faith was very important. Um, and I always studied music and voice, so I sang a lot for liturgies and weddings and things like that and uh, choirs. And so I always was kind of hooked in in leadership roles. And I did, a, uh, I did the music for a home mass at a dentist's home, from Creighton and uh, I heard this priest speak at the homily and I thought this is is intelligent and moving and kind of captured me. So I asked him if he wanted to go to coffee, well it turns out he was a Jesuit. That developed into spiritual direction and applying for the Jesuits in 1978. So I was accepted and there's a whole process, you know, two years of novitiate, first vows, a lot of different experiments where you are sent out on the road. Uh, to go do good works and, and make it with twenty bucks on your in your pocket, <laughs> so there were some high adventures uh, in those those days. And then there's a course of studies uh, for philosophy major, and I was working on my masters in English. And then the last year, the sixth year, I was teaching English at Marquette High in Milwaukee. But the thing about it, as much as I still love the Jesuits, I found it difficult to move from community to community and city to city and I think effectively I needed to be more stable in, in my living arrangement. So I asked to be able to uh, be relieved of my vows and went through a discernment process. and That's what I thought was the right thing to do. And then I wound up coming back to Omaha to go to law school in 1984. And so I was right back here and kept working with the Jesuits in a different way.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Creighton Law School, uh, which as I understand it, you're you're teaching classes there and have for quite some time.
1: Right, I've I've taught juvenile law since 1995, and it's a three-hour course where we cover the depths of what we do. Uh, I could I could probably teach multiple courses, but I don't have time. So we we put a lot into that three hours with juvenile justice and child welfare because it's all interconnected, and to do just one and not the other really is not the way to teach this. So Creighton's been very good to give me some latitude on that over the years, and, and I've enjoyed. It's a way to give back, but it keeps me on my toes, too, and I like meeting the students. They are amazing.
0: Sure. In terms of what you're doing in juvenile court here, um, can you just give a, just a thumbnail sketch of what your duties are, what sort of cases come in front of you? Um, what, on any given day, what, what do you run across?
1: We have a very diversified court. Um, our jurisdiction includes criminal law violations by youth, uh, what are called status cases, and the status is a youth's age being a minor, for example, not staying at home, not going to counseling, not attending school, runaways and so forth. Uh, also child welfare, so children who are neglected or abused, or have such special needs that the parent cannot independently provide for that and needs state assistance. Uh, We also deal with a lot of federal law, so the Indian Child Welfare Act, Adoption Safe Families Act, uh, Fostering Connections Act, there's all kinds, the uh, Child Abuse Prevention Treatment Act, I mean, the list is long and it keeps evolving. Now, we also have the jurisdiction, although we don't have to hear these cases, to uh, resolve domestic relations, Uh, dissolutions, custody, custody modification, uh, paternity, child support, and then, uh, and I, I do those cases. Um, the way I was trained, and the way I train judges is, it's best to have one judge for one family, so that you don't have multiple decision makers about family affairs. It's better to, you know, have one judge, and also to use mediation, parenting act, and have the family hopefully resolve their own issues. That's you know, my uh, mentor for me said years ago, uh, the judge who rules least rules best, and I I agree with that. <laughs> so. It's a. It really looks like a family court in some ways, and I can tell you more about that later because I'm uh, co-chairing a committee to research that and make recommendations. But it's a very full uh, picture there. And so if reunification on the child welfare side doesn't work out, then I also have the jurisdiction to achieve permanency in another way. It could be through adoption or guardianship, and there are a few other categories. So. All those family issues are ones that that we handle. And then in the context of that, uh, any kind of law crime in the criminal sense, we can hear too. It's just that our response is not punitive. Nebraska has one of the last uh, rehabilitative codes. So while making it right with any victim in society, we're trying to work with that child to make it right with what happened, but build on your strengths, make sure you're making better decisions, getting your education and that you don't come back here or wind up in criminal court. And then on the child welfare side, working with those parents to resolve why they're here. And, you know, 90% plus is due to mental health and substance abuse issues and then all the toxicities that can go with that. Lack of housing, medical care for their children, educational care for their kids, domestic violence and the like. So while we are working with those parents to help them resolve those issues we also are taking care of the children with all their myriad of needs too. just like uh, you know any good parent would so it's it's Maslow's hierarchy starting with the bottom line first of food clothing shelter education medical care and then we try to build on that and help that child resolve any trauma so I, I find this work exciting every day I come to work I'm never bored because it's vibrant and I, I am very privileged to be able to serve these families. I, I view it a mission, uh, to, to be of assistance and improve lives.
0: Absolutely, and um, remind me, how many years have you been on the court again?
1: This is my 24th. I'll start my 25th year in January.
0: And how, how large is the, um, the court in terms of uh, number of judges, cases heard, everything like that? I, I understand that maybe expanding in terms of how many judges are here?
1: Yes. Um, the Juvenile Court of Douglas County is the largest separate court ju- juvenile jurisdiction in the state. Uh, we just had our sixth judge at it, Matt Kaler, and we're really happy to have him on board. Um, we have, uh, you know, the greatest population. Um, unfortunately, the most gangs, most school districts, uh, poverty. Uh, and uh, so our in the metro here, uh, we are really busy. Um, each of the judges uh, has approximately 500-plus cases, five to 550, um, but that that's one way to looking at it. To me, in one case, I've had multiple parents. I've had even up to 10, 12 children. And so we treat each as an individual, and that takes time. So you can't just say, you know, it's one case. It's very complex cases also in that dynamic. Uh, So it's kind of funny on on occasion when we've had a visiting judge help out if somebody was out for an illness or a surgery um, (laughs) They'll ask my bailiff or whoever bailiff it is, um, you know Did you jack up the docket today, you know to really make it be busy and you know Our response is actually we lowered it to kind of break you in So they have no idea of the volume that we do and and uh, while we're while we're moving as you know promptly as we can It's got to be thorough and that's a balancing act, but it just, it overwhelms judges who are not used to the metro. Sure. It, to us, it's a way of life. It's what we do every
0: day. Sure. Some of the people listening to the podcast uh, may be interested in practicing in juvenile court. We certainly have young attorneys that are um, coming through our program actually next week the walk through the courts program. Do you have any any advice for those uh, for those young attorneys that are trying to get in, or even established attorneys that want to maybe... Uh, dabble into juvenile law and practicing in front of court?
1: Yes, I do. And uh, first of all, we welcome new attorneys, and we realize, like in any area of the law, it's a practice, and it takes time to get seasoned. We really uh, appreciate mentors, and the bar, of course, has been part of that, and Creighton and so forth, uh, ends of court. But um, I encourage uh, my students and young lawyers to come and observe and have coffee and observe. I introduce my staff and any of the others on the court. uh, See some of the different courtrooms and how how it plays out. Watch trials. Uh, Shadow a county attorney. Shadow a defense attorney. Shadow a guardian ad litem. Um, Go get a tour at the Project Harmony. Go see the Douglas County Youth Center. Uh, Get acclimated to what's happening. Go follow a probation officer. See what they do for uh, predisposition investigations. See what happens during duty judge week when we have detentions. protective custody hearings and and, you know Clarence Darrow would say if that's how you get tuned up for trials you go watch them see watch a master do it and I agree I think that's the way you see some good practice and uh, watch how the judges respond to the flow of evidence to objections how they treat people Um, and you can learn a lot so then what I and my colleagues generally do is ask that attorney do you have any experience with this kind of work why do you want to do this and you know what's your vision and so for some they might have been involved as a kid or maybe they knew somebody who was Uh, we have lots of former teachers uh, nurses there's all kinds of folks who have worked uh, with social issues in one way or another and so you might have a preference you know i i am a nurse and i i'd really like to work on child welfare with the baby cases Um, i'm a pediatric nurse great you know i was a teacher i really like teens you know like junior high or into high school. and so they kind of want to hone in on a specialty. Uh, some I are, you know who get this experience and they're acclimated with our work and domestic work, then it's perfect for when we resolve the whole case at the end, including custody. So we've got a spot for everybody and uh, even those attorneys that this is not their sole area, they might find they've got a client who has a child who gets involved in juvenile court or perhaps some other, it could be a neighbor, but if they had some understanding, they can give a little bit of guidance or hook up with someone who has the expertise if if they don't. So uh, we welcome the new lawyers, Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, The folks who work here, in my experience, really care about these families, and that's a joy for me. Uh, They're passionate in their advocacy, and they really do a good job. So we're blessed, our bar is so good and so strong. Uh, so, uh, I've got uh, a lot of folks coming through for these court observation days, and I'm, I'm, my court's always open to anybody. Uh, I, I have, you know, state senators. I've had congressmen, senators, uh, any of the hierarchy from Health and Human Services, um, any walk of life. I'd love to have them come. So, sure.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned maybe moving to a family court uh, dynamic, and you also mentioned the rehabilitative nature of, of the system here in Nebraska. Can you put in a context what the, the juvenile uh, justice system in Nebraska is compared to the country and and where we are in in that? Um, are we leading the way? Are we middle of the pack? Are we behind division in some ways?
1: That's a good question. Uh, as you know, this is the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Ray interest of Galt. And if you've if you and the listeners have not looked at that case in a while, check it out. Uh, it is so instructive about how we got to where we are at today because clearly what happened at the trial court level was an aberration of justice. No lawyer, no record, no appeal, no findings of fact, nothing to review, and he gets placed in the uh, state commitment uh, for up to 21, which was six years, he was 15. So there's, there's no pardon parole, there's no review process, And that's why Abe Fortas and the justices called it, just because you're a kid there's no justification for a kangaroo court, and I agree. So from that point, we have been on a learning curve. I would say Nebraska's ahead of the pack. Uh, I've been past president of the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. I still teach for them. I've got colleagues all over the country that I work with who are friends and, and professional colleagues. Uh, We, as I mentioned earlier, are one of the few states that are still purely rehabilitative in our juvenile code. With my students, for example, we juxtapose aspects of our current code with the original 1899 Cook County code from Chicago. We have exact language, verbatim, to this day. And I, I marvel at that. That's how well thought out it was that it still works. And then, of course, we've added things over time. But everything we do, and it drives the public nuts sometimes, but if the prosecution decides to file in our court, then we do our job under the law. The child is not going to be detained as a disposition, sanction, or consequence. So for some victims and some of the public, they don't like that. Well, that's what criminal court does. We, that is not our mission. And so, uh, you know you can take a big lesson from Father Flanagan and Boys Town from 100 years uh, celebration this year. He saw that back then, that if you create the right example, environment, training and support, children thrive. And that's what we're after. So we've had great developments of the code to do some reforms in the last five, six years that have added new provisions. So for example, the last thing we have to offer even though it's rehabilitative, is the Youth Treatment and Rehabilitative Center. But um, now there's a process that clearly shows there's a separate hearing requesting that relief and showing that other lesser restrictive alternatives have been exhausted. That's consistent with what we do. So you first try to keep a child at home, and if you can't, then we go to more structured settings, and then that's the last one we have. So the process is unique. Uh, I was just at a national meeting uh, about what are called crossover youth they could be in juvenile justice and child welfare our name for that is youth impact and i co-chair that and we we call it duly adjudicated youth Uh, but what i have found is in california texas louisiana georgia all kinds of states they incarcerate their kids and those judges wish they could get back to the rehabilitative mission and they are stymied because that discretion was taken away so we have a study that shows that our way of responding with this youth impact is working and saving money. And so we've, we've, we have completed five years, we're starting our sixth, and we're having some presentations here in Omaha and Lincoln with our partners. Uh, but we're the only one in the country with a study that shows it works. And it's so cool because we do it at the front end. So if you get ahead of things, you don't let them fester and boil over. Uh, so if a child's in child welfare or has been in the year prior, and a new charge comes up on the juvenile justice side. There's a team who analyzes that. The youth is there, the parent's there. There's a peer-to-peer mentor for the parent, and there's a child or youth advocate for that child. So they are heard. And then the recommendation's made to the county attorney about what to do. Well, the majority of the recommendation is add a little more on the child welfare side, maybe a little more family support, pro-social activity, uh, diversion, through the, the juvenile assessment center. And so our partnership with the county attorney has been wonderful on this. Nobody else is doing it like this in the country. And we find that we're having diversion in the mid 80% range, 85, 86%. So we're keeping them from further penetration with a little bit of self-help and it's phenomenal. So I mean, that gives you an idea how we keep having creative ways of responding within the parameters of our code where other judges are stuck and there's no discretion. and they have to lock the kid up, and all that does is make them harder. When they get out, there's no reentry plan, and then they just penetrate further into the criminal system. It's, it's sad.
0: And it, you, you mentioned that the focus, somewhat of the studies, is on dollars and cents, on on how much it costs, because that sings to the legislature and all that. Right? Yes, it does.
1: And uh, you know, funding that we've had for these programs, you know, we too want to know: Are we having good outcomes? Um, and does it save money? But there is a non monetary uh, benefit that sometimes you can't measure. Like, how do you measure the value of a child who thrives? You know, what quantitative analysis can measure spirit and heart? And so uh, I want to show the outcomes and the money saving, but I'm looking at a child or a parent who's become vibrant and alive and is enjoying life what's not to like.
0: Absolutely. That's very exciting um, to hear all that, and it sounds like we could definitely use with spreading that news around to the other jurisdictions out there. Um, You mentioned that you've you've been the past president of the National uh, Association for Juvenile Court Judges, is that correct? Yeah,
1: National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, yes.
0: And you've obviously um, done your part as president of the Omaha Bar Association. Uh, you, you're a you're a doer. You're a you're a joiner of these organizations. Uh, what? Why is it so important to 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 join and volunteer all of your time? Well, I
1: uh, I thank my parents and my family. Uh, we were taught to give thanks for your blessings and to give back and make the world better in whatever way you might be able to do. Uh, I don't have a savior complex. I've I've got. Uh, some things that I can do and some things I can't, and it's working in concert with others that that we really get the job done, but um, I do believe in a lot of the Jesuit principles and one of them is being service for others uh, and the majus, the more, uh, and uh, to serve with excellence and to think of others first. So uh, that's what moves me. And it also keeps me vibrant because I learn from others. And it's it's a privilege, frankly, to serve. And so um, that can be done in other ways, though. Um, leadership means a lot of different things because it depends on who the individual is and what their comfort level is. But when I train judges across the country every year, I will tell, uh, well, ask, you know, does any judge here have all the services and programs that they would like to have and of course no one does and I will say do you know the one resource no one can take away from you and they all give me a blank stare and I said it's you it's your leadership on and off the bench so when you take the bench remember it's not about you you know because you have a black robe you didn't get taller smarter your jokes didn't get funnier uh, it's service so pipe down and leave the ego behind and listen and give people the opportunity to be heard. Show respect, civility, that you care, and and make sure that there's understanding. I will ask parents, what do you think about this rehabilitative plan for your your child? Or I'll ask the child, what do you think about this probation recommendation? Um, or to mom, you know, can you think of anything else that would be of help for your child? We're missing. You try to engage them, and get some buy-in. You affirm the least right step they made, even while we hold parents and kids accountable. And so that that modeling of civility, respect uh, carries out and makes a huge difference. And so each judge can do that while still making tough calls when you've got to do it. But we give the reasons for our decisions and you present it in a way that's appropriate. You know, we don't glare, stare, cut off people, throw files, you know, have uh, temper tantrums, that nonsense. I teach about that in ethics, and we don't need that at all on the bench. It's terrible, and fortunately there aren't many people that do that in the country, but there are
0: some knuckleheads. (laughs) There's always the exception to the rule, right? That's true. (laughs) Um, Here in Omaha, and you mentioned Father Flanagan, we have a very unique situation of of having Boys down here, and um, that model, I believe, They may have five different locations outside of Omaha now. For for those on the podcast, uh, I want to shill here for a moment. We are doing a Boys Town Campus CLE, December 9th, Friday, December 9th. Judge Johnson will be there. And Nick Giuliano from Boys Town will will be there as well. We'll be discussing some some high-level issues um, through the CLE. You've been working with Nick on other things, too, and could you... Talk a bit about Boys Town's connection to what you do and and what they're doing um, to better the impact on on the youth in the community. Yes, Uh,
1: Boys Town has been a great friend to the court uh, since its inception. And that has not changed to this day with uh, the relatively new leadership of Father Bayes. We partner on a lot of projects. we will have our ninth summer family picnic this June. Uh, Boys Town has been a stay in that. We had it on their campus for a long time, and then we've recently switched to the Children's Museum. But you know, they've obtained you know food and and uh, you know all the, the prizes and fun games and things to have. And then our Casa program has been involved in that stronger also, uh, and so just a wonderful partner. Uh, they have helped us with family issues from at-home services all the way up to a residential treatment facility if necessary. So we call it the continuum of care at Boys Town. Nobody else has that in the country. And so we're lucky it's in our backyard. And, you know, there's quite a bit of talk in recent times that is anti-congregate care. And uh, that might not be a concept that the listeners are familiar with, but if you think of the word literally, congregate, you're pulling it together, and all all in one, and so that would be more like a barracks kind of a thing. Uh, that is not what Boys Town does. It's family living. They live with a, a family teacher, a couple, who might have their own kids there, and they live as a family does. They each have their own home. That is unique in the whole country. So uh, people might think that it's just another congregate care. It is not. Uh, and so... Uh, With the Youth Impact Program, Boys Town has been involved in that. Nick Giuliano has been co-chair with me since the inception and planning it, starting it. Uh, He also serves uh, with me and others on the Operation Youth Success Steering Committee, and he's on their executive committee. Uh, He's helped with the Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative, the uh, Crossover Dual Status project, as I mentioned, and here locally, statewide, and throughout the country, we've done presentations. We we had our first symposium with the Robert F. Kennedy Children's Action Corps in Boston a year and a half ago. Now we're planning for our 2018 second symposium, and so we are one of the sites that is a model site that is part of their uh, mentoring group. So uh, it's a pleasure to serve with Nick and so many others uh, who are there, um, Margaret Vasek and Jerry uh, uh, Davis and you know, uh, Bob Pick, and Dr. Daly when he was there, and you know, um, Father Bays, and Father Peter. So just a lovely crew, and I I, I, there's so many others I could say, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but they've got a big crew.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It's been really eye-opening to see their their campus and what they do. Um, as somebody who's been here since 2009, I didn't realize the full scope of it yeah. until I got over to campus and went through the tour and, and talked with people there. Uh, truly unique situation that uh, we're, we're blessed to have. What like you said to somebody on this podcast who wants to be more involved in moving forward the juvenile justice in, the, in their community. What what can they do to help out? You mentioned CASA. You mentioned being being an attorney, being at maybe a GAL um, uh, in the courts. Um, what can we do to help um, you and help the the courts? Well.
1: I respect that uh, a lot of the newer attorneys may have young families that are starting or they're going to, and you know, families first. But to the extent they're able, uh, we've got a spot for just about everybody. Uh, I'd involve, uh, encourage, please join the Omaha Bar Association. We've got committees there that work with youth. Uh, also, there's opportunities to volunteer as a CASA or serve as a lawyer or a guardian litem. Uh, we do have projects that uh, uh, maybe once a year, like the summer family picnic. But uh, there are opportunities to make sure kids get backpacks and maybe some, you know, football, basketball things that uh, uh, you know a child might not have easily. Uh, there are many, many mentoring programs that we have in our community. Uh, Deb Neary oversees a, a Metro mentoring. Uh, group and I had no idea that there were so many mentorships available then of course um, that's for youth in general there's a lot of um, attorneys I know that get involved in youth sports uh, pro-social activities in the arts music uh, painting pottery clay Uh, some act as mentors at schools and they will go to different activities uh, to promote reading or career path And uh, you know so there's so many things that we can do here but I think that the main thing is to whatever capacity and it could be in your church or whatever it is for you if a child has an honest mentor role model who has nothing in of it for him or herself that could be a lifesaver for that child and we often hear it's one person showed they care And if you show that the child matters, and I try to do that, you know, you are important. You're, you've got your whole life ahead of you, and so you made a mistake, fine. We're gonna deal with that and move forward. I think you give hope. And uh, that can be in the smallest of ways, or it could be in a big way. So I I don't wanna overwhelm people that they've gotta be on every committee and commission and, and, uh, you know, drive themselves to the end, but any little opportunity, or a bigger one would be appreciated. Sure.
0: One thing that I've found in working with you Judge is your passion and and you have so many passions and I can see the energy <laughs> the the positive energy that comes out of you when you talk about when you do things that you're passionate about and I like to promote with the Bar Association with our members uh, a roundedness to to what their passions are not just working, um, but also uh, things outside of the work. You, you mentioned your history with music, and y- you are a classical guitarist, is that correct?
1: I had to give that up, uh, okay. but I was, uh, I, I found that I couldn't study voice to the level I wanted to do, and then the classical guitar, so I let that go. But uh, I've, And also, because I've been so busy with all this work, I've kind of backed off of music, but I'm gonna get back into it and uh, start studying again. Uh, but I listen to it a great deal. And my daughter is a wonderful singer. Uh, she's sang internationally and is really really doing a good job. But uh, I do love the arts. Uh, they, they're so non-trauma uh, that it's uh, refreshing. Uh, but, yeah, that's one of my passions, too.
0: And a unique thing that some of our listeners probably have seen the, the articles on this, the news articles, television print, uh, Finnegan, a member of your staff here, uh, four-legged uh, furry uh, member of the staff has become pretty famous actually uh, in the courthouse. Could you tell us about that again?
1: Well yeah I can. Uh, so probably 15 or more years, No, well, probably gosh it must be 20 now. Uh, I had continued to read articles about having therapy dogs in courts and uh, I, you know, I've got this list of to-do things, and I don't always get to them as fast as I want, but I re- write them down so I remember them, and then I try to get somebody involved and delegate and move it. So I got a hold of our original CASA director, Nancy Wilson, who I knew was a dog lover, and I sent her the article. I said, Nancy, how are we going to make this happen? And she was on it, and then we started having therapy dogs come. And uh, then uh, down the road with Finnegan, uh, my wife suggested, why don't you get him to come to court and get him trained. So I asked my staff what they thought about that. Would they be willing to try it? Because we're a team and I'm, I don't do cram downs. And uh, they were excited about it. Um, they they said that they'd be willing to do it. And I also knew that this is one of those things that's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Uh, I, was, I was just going to do it. And so I did. Uh, we became trained as a therapy team. So he started his sixth year November 1st, and uh, he calms everyone down. The kids like to pet him, and professionals like to pet him, the parents do, and uh, he has gotten some national recognition uh, through the National Council of Juvenile mm-hmm. Affiliate Court Judges. I've had judges all over the country call me and ask me how they can do the same thing, and so it's been a pleasure to tell them of our journey, uh, uh, and so uh, it's, it's, it, it just helps relieve trauma and gives uh, some comfort, wordlessly, to others.
0: And is it taking off? Have you seen uh, more and more judges? Yes.
1: Yes. And And so a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Sean Marsh, uh, he came and did a trauma consultation for our court. Uh, And he had been with the National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges for a long time. Then the University of Nevada, uh, Reno lured him away to get him into a tenure track so he still consults for us uh, and at the last annual conference in, in July I did a presentation about you know court improvement practices and, and Sean did one on, on trauma and he had Finnegan there and he showed some other courts that have picked it up and then I had a ton of judges approach me at some of the various receptions you know Judge, thanks for telling me about that. I, I We've got the same program going now. What a difference it's made. And they're all so excited. And and uh, they said, yeah, we said if Judge Johnson says this makes it, you know, I said, I'm not looking for a pats on the back, but it's just, I mean, who doesn't love a dog? Uh, you know, Will R- Rogers was a pretty smart boy. and uh, There's a quote attributed to him which says something like, uh, if dogs don't go to heaven, I want to go where they go. And I think that's about right.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, unfortunately, I don't see him here today, or maybe he's in another room, but it's always been a fun time to come into your uh, chambers here, and, and pet Finnegan, he's a, he's a great dad. Thank sure. you. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, um, Is there anything that I missed? Well, a, a
1: couple things. One would be, again, with this idea of coming for court observation to see some problem-solving, or better term would be solution-seeking uh, ways of responding to the children and families that come before us. One is the pre-hearing conference. Uh, We borrowed this from another site uh, that was in the council and started that July 28 2004 And so I introduce it and teach what's going to happen the lawyers who appear here regularly know what the spiel is But this parent doesn't and so it pre teaches and it introduces mediation at the very beginning of a child protective case and so I let them know how important the family is what the duty of the department is even now pre adjudication to offer assistance and that it's voluntary. It's not used as an admission against interest. We call this front-loading of services. And so, I've loved this project and uh, I've written about it and uh, I've taught it. Uh, It's been a real big change agent, I believe, for those who do it and do it correctly. Uh, It gets the buy-in, it gets the services going and it advances the case more quickly to get children back home. And so, that that is one really neat project that we continue to do uh, that's been borrowed around the state we have trained mediators do that now not all the jurisdictions in nebraska do that personally i think that's a mistake because you know we think so much of mediators in the parenting act that you have to be on the list and and you know qualified this too is just as important that we have a a mediator who has that skill set to give that excellence and that's why i'm proud that we are following the original model Uh, then uh, I got permission from the Supreme Court to start Nebraska's first family drug treatment court. Uh, back uh, in '02, I think, I started pulling things together and I wanted to focus on birth to five. My passion and belief is, is that the further upstream we can get as a child's brain is developing, that's where we do the greatest amount of good. Now that's not to say that we give up or do anything less uh, excellently for those who are older, but that's the most formative time. And so there's a whole program we put together to stop foster care drift, to make sure that these children's early developmental needs are met. We've got special evidence-based child parent psychotherapy interventions to heal relationships that have been traumatic between parent and child, while parent is also healing and growing. And so I did that for 10 years. but. Uh, it was difficult because we could only have about 15 to 20 families and i thought this is not satisfactory so i thought about it i talked with a few other colleagues nationally and we all had a passion that we wanted to have every family have this opportunity so we cut out a middleman Uh, the funder put the money in project harmony which was my suggestion Uh, and we now have five coordinators and all the courts can uh, participate Uh, The idea is this, when you front load services and you have intense judicial oversight and intense case management, things get better sooner. And so it's a question of how much time do we have, how fast can you come back? So we're working on that because again, as you know, our docket's huge. But the normal federal review is once every six months. I cut that to 30 days. So we're on it, we're on it, and then after a review, I'll set a snapshot hearing, which is just put your finger on the pulse of the case, how's it going for parents, how's it going for kids, any fine-tuning. And so it keeps us on it, keeps us on it, and that's a wonderful program, too. And then, you know, we use ADR mediation for everything. I love it, and I make referrals all the time for that, as well as family group conferences, victim-offender conferencing. And uh, so those are a couple of additional programs that it's good for listeners to know about if they're unaware. If they want more information, I can get it for them. Then, I was on a national committee for the resource guidelines from the National Council, and that's how a case should move from start to finish in child welfare. We have one for delinquency. We have our new edition publication, which has all the updated law, and so I'm teaching on that too, and we've got materials available and are downloadable for practitioners. Um, And that's really what the Through the Eyes of the Child is about. It's implementing this best practice so that you don't train to the judge, you train to a systems reform because it's better for children and families, you know, it's science-based. And then, then, uh, you know, I was doing some public speaking, and I like to do that, and I was talking about what the future of juvenile court might look like. And uh, I said, I have this dream that we could do better. And one of the ways would be if we had family court, uh, not just a name, because there are many family courts in the country that do not make a big difference. It's not the name, it's the substance. So. Uh, This particular senator happened to hear me speaking and then he heard me speaking again in the next year at the Omaha leadership uh, training and said, you're going to do it and I'm going to put in a bill. And it happened just like that. Well, Chief Justice Heppigan gave me a call, (laughs) wouldn't know how that happened. I said, Mike, I was just talking, you know, I was just talking. Well, so we were able to reel it in a little bit and get coordinated with everybody. And people love the idea, health and human services, probation. Uh, the, the court uh, and I, I do, so um, so also did a funder. <laughs> so we've got a grant and we're working that through our child, uh, Court Improvement Project and I've got a team and I, my co-chair is Monica Kruger and we are going to study um, a model family court, unified family court, have a study of what we do because as you know we're trifurcated between juvenile county and district And you could have three touches on one family, and that's silly. It should be one judge, one family. And it should be timely and effective and and have better treatment of these these families and their issues. So uh, I've gotta be out a little bit for a a surgery that's upcoming. Uh, I'm gonna be okay. But uh, we're gonna get going uh, with some site visits after the first of the year. We've already sent them all of our law, uh, family practice uh, that we know of that we're doing now. Uh, the Parenting Act, what we do with ADR, our courts, and they're studying all that so they get the lie of the land. But they're going to come and observe, we're going to have stakeholder meetings, and ultimately we're going to come up with a recommendation of the Supreme Court. So I'm hoping that there's enough political will uh, because this could be as bold and big as our passion and commitment is. And uh, if if we always have the families as our focus of concern, that cuts a lot of turf because the courts do nothing more than exist to serve those children and families. Otherwise, it's just a structure, and it's not for me. It's for service. Absolutely. Um,
0: well, that's, that's exciting. Is there a timeline for when that uh, report may happen? or is I'm, it hoping, I'm
1: hoping by fall of next year. I, I would like to get our recommendation in before the end of the year.
0: And is that is that going to be a public recommendation or is that going to be to the court and then they they let us know what they think on it and it's another report from the court? The latter. Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> we
1: one of one of the things that judges are, are would do well remember is that we don't just unilaterally charge down a path. It's supposed to be coordinated among the courts and that's why the Supreme Court has the problem solving courts committee sure. and we get approval to go investigate big changes like this or potential changes. Um, you know, I can't just charge to help and uh, take it, so to speak.
0: Uh, one question I have when we're talking nationally about an opioid crisis and everything like that, uh, I was wondering if, if, you, if you see in our local um, courts and system, is there a significant change in the number of cases, in the type of cases because of what what they're describing as an opioid crisis nationwide? Is that something that's trickling down to, to your court or has it has it not really changed the makeup?
1: I don't think it's changed the makeup yet. I, I do have those cases. I do have kids who are getting into the medicine cabinet, taking pills. We, we do have that. I do have uh, parents, just as you know, there might have been a surgery, there might have been some pain management, and they get hooked on them. But uh, it's like the article on um, the impact from infancy. That's another the project I was telling you about that's now our Family Drug Treatment Corp at Project Harmony. Uh, I was asked, you know, what do you think about methamphetamine? it's like what do you mean what do i think about it you know it's there with all the other drugs and it's you know yeah it's bad but it's not the boogeyman everybody thought it's manageable uh with the right treatment and and so i think so too with this opiate crisis um i don't know um everything we do is a crisis i mean it's poly substance is what this is if you talk to the clinicians and during the week that's why some parents don't get it what do you mean i've got a job i've got a mortgage i got a i've got a you know a, car that's paid for and I'm working, I'm taking care of my bills. I just happen to do, you know, a lot of marijuana during the week. Uh, I don't touch the hard stuff till the weekend. What's the problem? <laughs> and and so that's that not realizing what's going on. And and so, and the judges who are new to this sort of stuff, when you say, you know, because it came in on marijuana, do not possess or ingest marijuana, well, you also have to tell them, and don't drink alcohol. Uh, you didn't tell me that, Judge. You didn't say. Well, Judge, you didn't say I couldn't do crack. Well, no, out, no mood-altering substances of any kind unless prescribed by a doctor, and then you have to keep your consults up. So you got to learn how this works, and so I, I am aware in my training that it is poly substance, and uh, it, it could be that something hits the paper, and if that is the sizzle, then that's the drug of the day. Uh, so this is the new one, I
0: guess. Sorry. Sure.
1: New old one. <laughs>
0: That's right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Judge. Um, we really appreciate it, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at the next OBA event.
1: Thanks, Dave, and I also thank uh, all the listeners, and uh, thanks for being in the bar. Thanks for your service and commitment. I think we've got one of the most outstanding bar associations in the country. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Thanks, Dave.